With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, it's her tell show for Monday, January 17th. The year of our Lord 2022 is in full swing. It's Martin Luther King Day in the United States of America. If you have a holiday today, please enjoy it safely. Have a good time. Make sure you find some time to reflect in there on top of it. If you're working, get on the grind. It's Monday. Let's get after it, folks. Glad you're with us. We appreciate your time uh, wherever you are across the street or around the world. It is a privilege to get to do this with you and have you with us. So thank you so much. Plenty to cover on Herd Tell today. Uh, Going to talk about a situation with Novak Djokovic, popular tennis player. Going to turn down the noise on his situation down in Australia. Uh, Going to talk about the Norwegian military running out of the one thing a military really, really needs. Got a cool little story to end this show about a former NFL player's uh, second act in life that is something that you probably would not expect. Uh, but first, let's start with the holiday of the day. It is Martin Luther King Jr. Day in the United States of America. And we need to talk about a few things with this. Um, so you heard tell that this is a day that we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King. We talk about things like civil rights, the civil rights movement, uh, and things like diversity and what it really means. Uh, this is a word that is getting used differently in culture now than it probably should be. Uh, most people are good with diversity. Some people seem to think diversity is a dirty word. Uh, the problem here is in America, diversity is a fact. In fact, America is getting more and more diverse. I call your attention back in August uh, when the census data came out, the Washington Post came out with this great infographic. You can find it at the Washington Post website. It's uh, part of their free uh, offerings. And you can actually punch in your county by zip code or by the county name and tells you the demographic changes in your county and how your county may be diversifying and or losing population of minority groups. It's a fascinating study because what they have found with the diversity in the census is America is more diverse than ever. I will call your attention to this Washington Post piece that starts out this way. Rapid growth among certain racial and ethnic groups means the nation is becoming more diverse more quickly than expected. Census data from 2020 shows America is growing, but not equally. The data released in August by the Census Bureau, this is from August in the Washington Post, remember, will provide insight into local communities, help officials redraw congressional and state political lines, and use to determine much of the federal funding for the next decade. Major population gains in the south and western regions of the country bolstered a 7.4% national increase in population over the past decade, with some of the biggest changes being in Texas, Florida, Georgia, and Washington State. Despite the gains, the pace of national growth slowed 
to its lowest rate in the, since the 1930s, and the data shows that as the country grows, its racial makeup is changing. In an increasing number of places, no individual race constitutes a large majority of the population. The biggest drivers of both growth and diversity, the Hispanic population, uh, which accounts for 9% of the overall growth in U.S. population. And despite what you may have been told, it is not immigration. Immigration is only a portion of that growth. Most of it is folks that are already here, and it's natural increases, more births than death. Their birth rate is very high. Conversely, the Asian population is also exploding, especially on the West Coast and places like New York City. Uh, the Asian growth is heavily drove by immigration, uh, and that population is growing faster and faster. A large portion of growth in the Asian population can be attributed to immigration. Since 2009, the increase of Asian immigrants counts higher than such numbers for Hispanics. Almost 60% of Asian Americans were born in another country. The Asian American population grew by 36% over the last decade and shows that it's not going to slow down anytime soon. And since it's Martin Luther King Day, what about the African-American population? Well, black Americans are still here. They hovered around 12% of the population. That's pretty consistent, but they're on the move and that demographic is changing. Um, the movement of black Americans away, again, this is from the Washington Post, the movement of black Americans away from places like Chicago echoes par- patterns of the great reverse migration, slowly beginning in the 1970s and continuously gaining traction. The group is moving to the suburbs and back to the South. Black people are moving to the South from a multitude of reasons, greater economic opportunity, lower cost of living, and high cultural and familiar affinities. While the black population is shifting across the United States, is also changing shape. Black Americans who identify as a single race are aging, adding five years to the median age since 2000, while multiracial black people are younger than any other group. They have a median age of about 16. This is data from the Washington Post and the census again. Hispanics are the largest non-white U.S. population under 18, followed by black people as the second largest non-white group in the same range. Uh, They also talk about uh, American Indian and Alaskan Native populations that are also growing. That is through mostly birth rates and identification. Uh, And then here's the kicker. White population falls for the first time. The census marks the first decade. The total number of people who identified non-Hispanic whites declined. The population decreased by 5.1 million. It is the first time this has happened in 230 years that the enumeration of the census has started. The white population suffers from two disproportionate characteristics that define their decade, high mortality and low fertility. Uh, The shift means the group is growing older and the nation's younger generations are becoming less white over time. As recently as 1993, fourths of the U.S. population identified as white, a portion that is rapidly declining. Now only 57.8% of the population identifies as white. Roughly four in 10 people identify as non-white, a figure that is predicted to continue to grow and the nation moves towards the next decennial census in 2030. What does all this mean? There are folks who will use this for all kinds of cultural and political reasons. But the fact of the matter is America is getting more diverse. America is a big country that is very diverse and a big pluralistic country. What does that mean? It means we have a lot of different people In America, we have a lot of different cultures. We have a lot of different races. We have a lot of different backgrounds. We have different ethnicities and religions. It's part of the beautiful part of America 
what used to be called the melting pot. We have folks from what, from wherever all over. They come here. They become Americans. And that's the beauty of it. But there's still that small percentage of folks who just don't like that or they fear that. They hear a stat like white America is declining and they have a problem with that. Uh, why? Why do you have a problem with that? Writing in uh, Ordinary Dash Times uh, for this Monday, this Martin Luther King Day, uh, I put some of these thoughts into uh, writing, and sometimes I'm more articulate when I write than when I just speak off the cuff. So I'll just read you a little bit from there. And I cited the same data I just ran through with you uh, about diversity. Uh, diversity is happening whether you like it or not, so you better just get good with it. And if you're not good with it, you need to explain why. Writing in Ordinary Times, I put it this way. I said, long story short, America is increasingly diverse. You're either good with America being a diverse, pluralistic society, or you are not. And if you are not, the burden of explaining why you are not is completely on you. The increased diversity of America is inevitable. Complaining about it would be the same as wading into the Mississippi River and demanding the flow reverse. Any arguments against a more diverse America fall on the wrong side of morals, of history, of any type of patriotic love for what's good of the country and all the people in it. Hiding sentiments against this change in the name of protecting culture or tradition or the greater good, all terms with one meaning on their face, but really a cloak for variations on different from me and how I want things to be, are worse than futile. Such sentiments are gashing wounds that make the inevitable more painful than it needs to be. Somewhere among the remembrances, quotes, and sentiments of Martin Luther King Day do the bare minimum of, quote, finding another quote, meaning how folks tend to just take that one line from the I have a dream speech and use it and move on and never contemplate the rest of the things Dr. King wrote about on social media will chide folks to do. If you just have to go MLK quotes on MLK Day, I recommend just about anything from the letters letter from a Birmingham jail. But if you really want to do something productive on MLK Day, Take a self-inventory of how you've been talking about things like demographic changes, about diversity, about race, and about the changing of America. America is increasingly diverse. You are either good with America being a diverse, pluralistic society, or you are not. So are you. More Hertel right after this. Guy, welcome back to Hertel. Let's turn down the noise on something that got really loud in the sports world and spilled over to the culture and politics world. Uh, Novak Djokovic is the number one ranked tennis player on the men's side in the world, and we have had a saga for the last few weeks of him in Australia. The Australian Open, one of the major tennis tournaments in the world with an overall purse of something in the neighborhood of $55 million, is going, getting ready to kick off. And Jokovic had come down to play in it. The only problem was he was not forthcoming on his immigration status when he filled out his paperwork for his visa to come into the country. Now, let's stop right here and preface a couple of things. Australia has had absolute uh, total lockdowns. They have had very strict rules for their COVID-19. We had Emily die on the Hertel program. You can go back and listen to that full length podcast from a few months ago when they were completely locked down. They were not allowed to go outside. Australia was arresting people for exercising. They were stopping people to make sure they had 
the correct reasons to be outside. Uh, by just about any Western country's standards, their lockdowns were some of the most severe that we've seen. They've been highly controversial. The government there's under pressure about it. Um, they've been slow getting the vaccines into the country. There's all kinds of issues going on. That's the backdrop that all this goes on. So if folks like Yokovich and his supporters want to say there was a political motivation here, they've got a point. There is a political motivation here. The government of Australia has been, I would say, almost draconian in the way they have used lockdowns to try to deal with the COVID-19 situation. It's caused a lot of problems inside of Australia. So, of course, yes, there's a political element. But what we do here is we turn down the noise. There's no version of this story with Novak Djokovic that doesn't start with Novak Djokovic. Nobody made him not have the correct paperwork. Nobody made him lie on his immigration form. Nobody made him go to Australia if he didn't want to be vaccinated. Nobody made him go do photo shoots and interviews and all these other things where he would be exposed. And then all of this is, of course, caught on camera and all this video of him doing these things surfaced, which showed that he had not been forthcoming and truthful on his immigration form. All of that is on Novak Djokovic. He could have had some personal responsibility here and just said so and would have solved a lot of this problem. Now, what's happening on social media is everybody is grabbing this story and slamming the nice square peg of this story of a privileged athlete not wanting to play by the rules, no matter how dumb those rules may be, no matter how much you disagree with those rules, they're still the rules. He didn't want to play with them, and now he's got consequences. But they want to take that square peg and slam it in the round hole of their priors on what they think about COVID. You'll see a lot of, well, if they can do it to the best tennis player in the world, imagine what they'll do to you. Well, sure, if you try to go to Australia, lie on your immigration form, go and do photo shoots and other things when you know you've been exposed to COVID and you know you're not vaccinated, all those things are on, once again, Novak Djokovic. There's this thing going on with COVID and a lot of other things in society, but COVID is just one way it's showing where folks are confusing freedom and rights and consequences. If you're not going to follow the rules, that's fine. And you can say the rules are dumb. You can say they're bad rules. Matter of fact, one of the great problems in a free society is balancing what a good and bad rule is and what to do when a rule or a law is bad. But there's still rules and there's still laws. And if you knowingly break those rules and laws, there are consequences. And too much of this discourse keeps coming back again and again to people that want to confuse rights and consequences. You have rights. Rights shouldn't be violated. But too often people are throwing rights on top of consequences and wanting a world where they get to live consequence-free of their decisions. That's not how the world works. Novak Djokovic wanted to use his celebrity and his privilege to get to do it his way. He didn't want any consequences. And now he has consequences. Let's not confuse rights and consequences. Those are two very different things, especially when they come to celebrity, multimillionaire, world-class athletes who think they should be treated different. And most of the time, they are treated differently. Yes, there was probably a political element involved here, too, but that could have all been avoided by him not lying on his immigration form. Or he could have just went and got the vaccine. He made a decision not to get the vaccine. He made the decision to make his life this kind of difficult. That's all on him. Once again, None of this story, no version of this story, no version of the noise that's coming from this story happens if Novak Djokovic just takes care of his business. 
A lot of people used to want to think personal responsibility was a thing, but when it comes to their political discourse and cultural discourse, and they want to make a hot take online, all of a sudden personal responsibility isn't real handy. We have to blame everybody else, but let's remember one more time, just to reemphasize real loud for the folks over and overflow consequences and rights are two different things. And you don't get to live in a consequence free world based on your actions, especially when you're privileged, especially when you're rich, especially when you have options and you choose to not follow the rules. More Hertel right after this. Ah, it's Hertel show. Uh, he's back. Uh, from our friends over at elections-daily.com, who does excellent work. Make sure they are in your information rotation. Uh, Joe Zemanski, back to talk a little redistricting, a little bit of independent commissions, a little unindependent commissions, as the case may be. We'll get into it. How are you, sir? I'm good, Andrew, and thank you for having me on this afternoon. Yeah, we love having you. We'll keep having you on because uh, it's an election year. I don't know if you heard. Uh, There's going to be some (laughs) elections this year, so we're probably going to be talking to you and the Elections Daily crew a lot. Uh, let's start with some nomenclature before we dig into your latest piece on the redistricting commissions. I think the nomenclature gets lost. So let's just make sure everybody's on the same song sheet here. Uh, one person's redistricting is one person's gerrymandering. Uh, so let's just go over the nomenclature redistricting gerrymandering. What's the difference? Which one's righteous, which one's not righteous, or are these just shovels and you can use them to bury your neighbor and, or dig for buried treasure. It's just all in how you use it. Yeah. So redistricting is, excuse me, a process that uh, any state uh, over a certain population uh, or basically any state that has multiple that has been given uh, an apportionment uh, that's done by the United States Census every 10 years, uh, multiple seats uh, at our House of Representatives, uh, they have to redraw those congressional districts based on those census lines every year, uh, every 10 years when that census news comes in. So that's really the key thing when it's redistricting. It's meant to be a fair process where legislators legislators get together uh, from the state, from all these states. They come together in their own separate states. Uh, they hopefully create a map that is fair and uh, creates proportional representation uh, in their state. And then that would be a map that would be signed usually by the governor. If a state has, of course, though, uh, super, if a state party has, of course, a supermajority, uh, in the state legislature, then of course it can be bypassed from the governor. But that that's basically what redistricting is. And then gerrymandering is basically taking redistricting and turning it into something uh, that's supposed to be favorable for one party or another. Uh, we've seen some really uh, extreme cases in recent years. Uh, you look at Texas uh, and Ohio for places like Republicans. You look at places like Illinois for Democrats uh, with Oregon kind of in that range, as well as it seems like New York seems set to very much join Illinois in, in the range of uh, very strong Democratic gerrymanders, potentially. So when I talk about gerrymandering, it's when we they do the re, these legislatures do the redistricting process. They do it in a way that makes sure to favor uh, their party. They draw the lines in weird ways They connect uh, areas that maybe do not have any interest together, except they vote for the same party. They connect those together to make sure that the seats that they draw, most of them, or maybe even in some cases, all of them are uh, favored 
to the party in power instead of a fair and equalized map. Yeah. And to be fair, let's just get this out of the way up front because I can already hear people howling about it because I talk about this online like you do. So I already know I know where we're going with some of this. Um, there is a lot of undue stuff that happens with gerrymandering. There's a lot of really unfair stuff. I know in my home state, we just did, we not only, we lost a congressional seat, so we had to get rid of that, but they also redid the entire House of Delegates structures, went to 100 House of Delegates. And you have fun stuff like every single county has to be its own county. Oh, wait, there's this one place in Dunbar Institute where it's a minority majority neighborhood. Now we're going to go street by street. You get kind of nonsense like that. So to be fair, uh, there is malfeasance and there's real harm done when these maps are not done fairly and equitably and not done thinking of the people first and not political power first and foremost, aren't they? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, gerrymandering has been there, there's been data uh, that uh, that in some cases has shown that when you do gerrymander, it actually turns down political participation in the state because of, of lesser. A lot of what these gerrymander maps do is create, uh, for the most part, very uncompetitive seats. Uh, I mean, if you look at uh, state of Illinois, there's really only one truly competitive seat, and that's a Biden plus six seat that drags all the way from Rockford to Peoria and across a couple of blue states on the Illinois-Missouri border. So, you know, it's 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 very hard when states gerrymander uh, for them to then create competitive maps. Texas is the same way. Really, there's only one truly competitive uh seat in um, in texas's 15th new 15th district that's really it so that's that's kind of what happens here of gerrymandering is that not only does it create a very strong imbalance of power it also turns down voter interest and voter uh turnout because they know that their congressional seat is going to go one way or or another no matter what under these gerrymandered maps yeah um now, one solution, there's a lot of ideas on how to fix gerrymandering. There's no way to fix it because that's fixing human behavior. So let's just get that out of the way. Uh, but one thing that people want to try is they boast of independent commissions. Uh, we have some data now. You have the initial redraws from some of these independent commissions. Uh, just real briefly before we get into it, though, what is the idea behind an independent commission as opposed to the state legislature or the state elected officials doing this? Uh, the idea behind it is usually when it comes to independent commissions is usually uh, creating some citizen dumb process. Usually this process will see anywhere between six to 12 uh, citizen selected picture uh, um, uh, commissioners who would apply for the job and then would basically be like lots, be pulled out of a system. And then those 12 would become uh, commissioners uh, who would be tasked to redraw the maps. Uh Sometimes uh, in a state like Michigan or Arizona, there's, uh, you know, there are selected from a Republican bait from a Republican bowl and then some selected from a Democratic bowl. And then in Arizona, there's one person who's supposed to be an independent uh, chair. And then uh, Michigan, there are four people who are registered independents who are then selected to be uh, commissioners. So, you know, it can, those are just two examples. Uh, that's really the main thing of this idea is that's supposed to be a citizen system where legislators are not involved in the process, uh, supposed to be not involved in the process, I should say, in any way, uh, instead of in the process of redrawing their maps. And it theoretically should create a fairer and more balanced system of representation uh, in the states of, you know, states of the United States of America. All right. But now we've gone through the process. We've got a couple months into this. We have maps on paper. We have laws on the books. Did they work? 
It depends on what state you're looking at. You know, when it comes down, uh, the, the state I go to college to and the state, if you follow me online, you'll, it's one of two states I cover a lot. And that's, of course, the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia in the state of 2020, uh, as voters were electing Joe Biden <coughs> president and uh, electing Mark Warner back to the Senate, uh, voters in relatively by a relatively uh, heavy margin, I believe around 30 to 35 points, passed a uh, new amendment to the Virginia Constitution that the registering process for the House representatives, the state Senate and the state House would now be led by an, a theoretical independent commission uh, instead of the state legislatures. But the problem that showed up uh, was that this commission still allowed state legislators in the process. Uh, there were three citizen commissioners from each side, but also there were three uh, legislature commissions from each side, uh, which very quickly became a problem. Uh, Republicans led by State Senator Ryan McDougal uh, were not necessarily very working or not very necessarily uh, doing a great job of working around with the Democratic side of things and trying to make a deal. While also on the Democratic side, uh, State Senator Dick Slaslaw uh, was pushing very hard for incumbency and incumbent locations to be uh, included in kind of the way they drew the map, which under a fair process uh, should not be how things are considered. Incumbent location under a fair process for redistricting uh, should not be considered uh, a major part of those uh, of that process. So that's really kind of the big key issue in Virginia. And then you've got some middling states. Uh, you've got New Jersey, who is, you know, New Jersey has its own problems in which they're not necessarily legislators, but they're party, uh, you know, party uh, connected, seven party connected members uh, are put together on a commission uh, from seven from each side. And then there's one apparent independent member who, uh, if the two sides cannot come to a deal, uh, will pick a map from either side. Uh, that's what's been happening in Jersey for the last couple of decades. Uh, that's what happened this decade. Uh, the independent per the independent commissioner picked the Democrats map, which basically shored up basically all of their competitive seats, except for uh, New Jersey Southern's Tom Malinowski. Uh, and then you've got Washington and California, uh, two kind of Different states in a way. Washington, I think, ended up with a very fair map, but there were uh, shenanigans. Uh, the commissioners almost failed to do their job in passing a map. They were technically they did fail uh, under a strict reading of the state constitution. They did not submit it to the state Supreme Court in time and to the state legislators in time, which uh, if the Supreme Court had said that if they had upheld that strict reading would have meant that the Supreme Court itself, which is one of the most liberal state Supreme Courts in the country uh, would have drawn the map, which had a lot of Republicans concerned that that would have taken out potentially two competitive seats in Washington that are one is held by a Democrat, another is held by a Republican and turn them into more Democratic leaning seats. There was some concern there that didn't happen in the end, uh, but it was concerning that kind of Washington for the first time came down to the wire in their commission. And then there was California's. Uh, California's did a good job in eliminating legislators from the process. Uh, it was a fully citizen-selected commission. Uh, but as there has been in the past with California's commission, there's been concerns. Uh, the Central Valley region of uh, California had no um, commissioners uh, on the commission. There was no one from that part of the state there. And that was kind of the part of the state that kind of got played around with the most. Uh, of some of the Republicans that were on the commission, they came from 
uh, areas that were not necessarily uh, indicative of Republicanism. Uh, there was a Republican from Berkeley uh, on the commission. And if you know anything about the city of Berkeley, it is that uh, Jill Stein got more of the vote there in 2016 than uh, Donald Trump did in 2016. So if that if that tells you anything about the city of Berkeley, uh, there it is right there. So, you know, it, California in pure look at 2020 numbers and pure numbers of Biden to Trump seats is not unfair. What California's commission did do, however, is make sure that there was, in general, a lack of competitive Democratic seats, especially uh, in the Central Valley. There are fair ways where you can draw a similar map that creates a about Biden plus two or three uh, Central Valley seat and ways that you can create more competitive seats around Orange County. But instead, what Democrats, uh, the, the commission did was that they created a more competitive seat, uh, a more competitive seat in Riverside, surprisingly for Ken Calvert, who was mostly most of his career had a relatively safe seat in Riverside County in the Republican parts there. And uh, they instead drew his seat in a particularly weird way uh, that makes it a only about a Trump plus one or two seat from 2020. And not only that, uh, they didn't make, and only that they drew what is now California's third district from what was about a Trump plus six or seven district. They've made that a part of a Trump plus three district, uh, you know, and at the last second, there was supposed to be only about a Biden plus five district that would be held uh, by Congressman Mike Levin, uh, but they made a last second change from the seat that uh, saw the seat draw in a bluer part of San Diego County. It's an orange to San Diego, uh, northern San Diego County seat. It drew in a more blue part of San Diego County and more uh, made Levin's seat uh, more blue than it was and likely makes it definitely a little bit safer than it would have been on what was almost the final map. So California's problem, if you look at it, just again, pure partisan numbers, uh, not necessarily unfair, but they not necessarily do a very good job of creating many competitive seats, especially in areas where there could have been potentially more competitive seats, especially looking at Central California, so the Central Valley and Orange County. Uh, there could have definitely been a more competitive seat or two in those two areas, especially. Yeah, he's Joe Zemanski. He's from elections-daily.com. He brings us startling insights like Berkeley is somewhat liberal. Uh, and we're going to continue breaking into some of these redistricting stories. We're going to talk about a couple states, some surprises, because there's almost a juxtaposition of states that had really smooth elections or having really messy redistricting fights. We'll get into that with him right after this on Herd Tale. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Still talking to our buddy uh, Joe Zeminski from elections-daily.com. They are now part of the Decision Desk HQ crew. They are getting bigger, faster, stronger, getting in on the ground floor like I've been since they first started. Good folks, good information. Put it in your rotation. I, I'm a little perplexed when I read your article at elections-daily.com. Um, you have Virginia, which had a very contentious election, but mechanically, it ran. that election ran really, really smoothly. There wasn't too many hiccups in it. Their redistricting is a mess. You have states like Arizona, which turned into total Chernobyl with all the cyber ninja nonsense and the after effects of that election. But their redistricting went really smoothly. 
that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Or is it a reaction to the elections? And then folks that maybe didn't get what they want in the elections, they go to look for getting theirs in redistricting. Why is that? Can you explain that? Or did you notice that trend as well? You know, that's something when I look at it, I look at what Arizona's was. And I think I mentioned this in my article, but Arizona had a lot of underlying issues uh, in their 2010 uh, redistricting period uh, and their redistricting for uh, 2011 to 2021. Uh, the chair at the time uh, sided a lot with the two Democratic commissioners, and there were a lot of three to two basically partisan line votes uh, on the commission uh, for this past decade. Now, for this upcoming decade, the, the latest chair, the independent chair, uh, Erica Newberg, uh, very, very much said that she wanted to avoid that same nonsense when it came down to the redistricting process. Uh, you know, she wanted to make sure that there was, uh, you know, it, it all approval all around. She wanted unanimous approval on these maps. And Newberg was very firm in that. She listened to all sides. She sometimes early on agreed with Democrats on certain things and on certain things she agreed with the two Republican commissioners. And in the end, uh, she helped craft a map that passed unanimously that uh, each every commissioner all on the two on each sides were happy with. And in the end, created a really smooth redistricting process that created competitive seats uh, that is still a five four Biden map and cr again created two new competitive seats, one in the Scottsdale, Maricopa suburbs, and one in the Tucson area suburbs. It created more com two competitive seats in a state that is going to be, for the next decade, a massive battleground state for both parties. So what really happened there, I think, was the duties of a really strong chairwoman who came in and said, look, we are going to make this process fair. I am not going to be someone who looks to agree with every side, every, every time we are going to get this done and we're going to make a fair map done and we're going to make people hopefully have trust in some of our systems again here in Arizona. Yeah. Still talking to Joe Zemanski. Um, let's move forward. We were looking backwards with the redistricting stuff. Let's look forward. You've put out your first list of house seats. Uh, everybody knows historically and cyclically what midterms usually mean. Uh, we are up to, I believe, 26 Democratic uh, either retirements are not going to run for office now. We also know that redistricting, because of the way the state legislatures and that process, uh, Republicans are expected to pick up seats there. Uh, it's a lot of noise right now, so turn down the noise for us. I know it's a way too early prediction, sure to go wrong. How bad is this bloodbath going to be for the Democratic Party? Are we looking at double digits? Are we looking at <laughs> dozens and dozens? Are we looking at a 40-point historic wave? What do you think we're looking at right now? I think right now, if you look at the way the map's drawn, and I think what a lot of people have underestimated right now is that while, yes, Democrats have gotten some victories in Illinois and California, in other states, and just the way things are drawn in the way that the environment is right now, there's a lot of states with, you know, seats that were, you know, between Biden plus two and Trump plus two that we'd say are going to be favored towards the Republican Party. Uh, that's kind of really the thing with these midterm election years is that these are seats that are going to be, uh, you know, favored for Republicans, you know, not by a, not by a whole lot, but they will be favored for Republicans. Uh, you know, right now, if you look at our ratings right now, and we we haven't put up the full update yet, but with some. Uh, States, of course, finishing from our first update, uh, we have about 
uh, if I look at my numbers here correctly, we have about 149 seats right now that we'd say are favorite Republicans right now. And of our of about our 15 toss ups right now, uh, you know, only only four of those seats are held by Republicans. Eleven of those seats are held by Democrats. And, you know, that is going to be the way this year is going to go. A lot of these seats that are in the range of, I'd say, around Biden to Trump plus five, you know, Biden plus five, the Trump plus five. These are going to be competitive seats that if the environment stays the same way it is right now, they're probably going to go to Republicans. Uh, that's why right now I'd say I have Democrats losing around 20 to 30 seats right now in the House of Representatives, which uh, they only need to lose five to lose their majority. Uh, I have Republicans. Uh, I think right now, if you look at where seats are going and which seats are going, uh, I'm, I would be fairly confident in saying by uh, this time next year, we'll be dealing with a new Republican majority in the House of Representatives. Yeah, it sure looks that way. We're talking to Joe Zemanski. Uh, just to put a bow on this real quick, um, what I, I think bellwether states are way overblown. However, I do think there's a couple things to really watch for. I've kind of dog-eared Georgia because I think that's going to be uh, the Trump folks. That's kind of been their Alamo. They're still smarting over the uh, special elections there. Uh, I, I think Georgia is going to be kind of the one to watch. But what's your state uh, going into these midterms? What's the state you're looking at and going, I'm paying attention to that because that's going to have some ripple effect and that's going to be something that I'm paying a lot of attention to? Well, you know, I'm going to first of all give a slight, a small shout out to my, to my home state of Pennsylvania, who was in, in every year, it feels like always has something going on. But the real state I'm really going to be looking at this year is uh, the state of Nevada. And if, if we see Nevada, it's going to have two competitive races, it seems like. Uh, uh, they're going to have a competitive race for governor, and they also have a Senate seat up uh, that looks for sure to be competitive. Uh, you know, this is a state that really didn't move that much, even though Joe Biden won by three points more nationally than Hillary Clinton did and won a majority of the vote. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a state that basically didn't move uh, from its 2016 feature. This is a seat. That doesn't have a, this is a state that doesn't have a whole lot of college educated voters, especially around Las Vegas and Clark County, has uh, groups of Hispanic voters that we have seen trend rightwards uh, from 2020 and 2021. So if Republicans win Nevada, uh, both the governor's seat and the Senate seat on the night, you know, that probably means it's been a pretty good night for them. And uh, that's probably a show that not only have they almost for sure flipped the House of Representatives, but that also likely means that they've uh, flipped the United States Senate as well. Yeah. Do you think Nevada keeps their caucus? I think they do. Uh, just because it's it's a state that's fairly important. And I think it's a state that they see themselves as a state that could become first in the nation for Democrats. So I think right now they want to sell themselves off of that and we'll see what happens with it. Does Iowa keep their caucus? Absolutely not. <laughs> we we hope uh all due respect yes. to our friends in iowa but what a total cluster that was uh joe zamansky we really appreciate it. let folks know where they can follow you on social media and all the great work you're doing at elections dash daily especially right now because you have some election tools on there you have some interactive tools on there and you have these ratings we were just talking about i'm assuming you're probably going to be updating pretty regularly yeah uh we should have be having senate and gubernatorial ratings for 2022 coming out shortly uh, you can follow me at Joseph Samansky. That's S-Z-Y-M-A-N-S-K-I on Twitter. And you can follow Elections Daily, Elections underscore Daily uh, on Twitter as well. That's where we post uh, links to our articles and as well, sometimes some news and rating updates as well. 
And of course, if you go to the website, you can sign up for a newsletter, uh, which will give you a nice little document of all our articles from the week. Every, every, week, every week on Monday, it'll give you your articles from the last week. Uh, we hope to see you there. Uh, Andrew, once again, thank you for having me on. Yeah, and I love Elections Dash Daily because they give you a lot of the raw data. A lot of times they'll even have like a PDF option on a lot of their stuff. Uh, they give you the information and they let you figure it out. They don't beat you over the head with it. It's something I greatly appreciate you, uh, uh, Cunningham, all the folks over there. Great job, buddy. We'll have you on a lot this year. I'm sure uh, you be well. Enjoy the last of your break there and we'll talk soon. Thank you very much, Andrew. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate you, sir. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Uh, we cover all sorts of stories here, but uh, this is one to make you a little bit more thankful. I know as a veteran of the United States military, this made me very thankful for how the United States military does things. A uh, story from Fox 10 Phoenix. Norway, like many countries, is facing a supply chain issue, but some shortages you may not expect. The Norwegian military says it is dealing with a short supply of underwear. It is now ordering conscripts to return their underwear, bras, and socks after the end of military service so that the next group of recruits can reuse them. Until recently, the roughly 8,000 young men and women who every year do their military service returned their outer clothing but were allowed to leave the barracks with the underwear and socks they were issued. Norwegian Department, the Norwegian Defense Logistic Organization, handles supplies for the country's military branches. It blames quote, a challenging stockpile situation and said the move is necessary to provide the armed forces with greater garment volumes available for new soldiers starting their initial service. The used items are laundered and then checked for quality before being reissued. Thank God. It <laughs> spokesman Hans Meserenset said that the proper checks and cleaning the reuse of garments is considered an adequate and sound practice. Military service is mandatory for both men and women in Norway and lasts between 12 and 19 months. There is one item the soldiers are allowed to keep it is their beret. Frozen Forum reported that supply shortages have, quote, had a recurring problem for years in the military in June 2020. A third of the soldiers' clothing and equipment was missing. Say what you want about the U.S. military. They did not reuse our underwear and socks except for ourselves. Thank God we're not in Norway. Thank God none of us are at war at the moment. More Dell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, we always try to end on a good note, a happy note, a lighter note, something like this to end the things. Here's a fun story. Uh, that might get your attention. Retired NFL offensive lineman Jared Veld here was looking for a new challenge in Grand Rapids, Michigan last summer when he heard about a job opening. This is from the Washington Post. It was at his kid's school in the cafeteria. The Catholic school needed someone to oversee cooking and serving lunch for about 260 students from preschool through eighth grade. The previous manager had quit and the school wanted to line up somebody quickly because classes were to start in two weeks. I wasn't looking to become the school lunch lady, but I figured this was something I could handle, said Veld here, 34, who was once named the NFL's most indispensable players. Veld here, who played for several teams, including the Green Bay Packers, the Denver Broncos, the Oakland Raiders, 
said he was intrigued by the job in part because he loves cooking and also as a professional athlete, he spent a lot of time focused on nutrition. I'd eaten meticulously for more than a decade, and I thought there's value in being able to cook and provide kids with a good nutritious lunch, said Veld here with two children, Eva six and Edwin four, attend St. Paul the Apostle Catholic School. He accepted a job at $15 an hour. That's a far cry from the millions he made in the NFL, including $29 million with the Arizona Cardinals. He did it for the experience and to help out, he said, not for the money. As soon as the cafeteria was renamed the Spa 68 Cafe, after his NFL uniform number, students and parents said they right away saw a difference in the $3.50 lunch menu. Slices of pizza with salty tomato sauce and greasy cheese were history, as were the chicken nuggets, french fries, and sugary desserts. They had been replaced by smoked carnitas, mashed cauliflower, a salad bar, and Korean beef bulgogi. By the way, one of my favorites, a dish most of the kids had never tasted. I knew the kids would love it, Veldir said, explaining there's brown sugar mixed into the marinade. The trick he discovered would be getting them to try it. It took a while to capture some trust from the kids, he said. Kindergartners are my toughest critics. Veldir slowly won them over with patience, artful food presentation, music to accompany their lunches, and plenty of enthusiasm, he said. To persuade the students to try the German sausage and sauerkraut, he dressed up in lederhosen, no small feat for a man who is six foot eight and weighs 265 pounds. That's down from my NFL career weight of 330, Veldir noted, but even then, as a big guy, I always tried to eat healthy. School principal Michelle Morrow said the healthier food and excitement in the cafeteria is a welcome change. Everything he makes is delicious and appreciated by the kids and adults alike, Morrow said. For him, it's not just cooking. It's making sure the food and nutrients students are eating serves them best in the classroom. Mr. Veldir not only makes everything homemade and fresh, he's introducing kids to new foods and teaching them about nutrition and mind-body connection, said Sasano, 46, with all the things he could have chosen to do after football, it speaks volumes. That he's decided to take on this role. Veldir said he never imagined that he would one day trade in his shoulder pads for a chef's apron. After graduating high school in Grand, Prix, Grand Rapids, excuse me, he played football for Hillsdale in South Central Michigan and was drafted by the Oakland Raiders in 2010. From there, he enjoyed a successful career for 11 years and was brought out of retirement twice to play for the Green Bay Packers and Indianapolis Colts. He arrived at the school by 7.30 every morning to prep for the day's meal and to get hot dishes and the salad bar ready for the first lunch at 11 a.m. I get my beef from local butchers. I smoke a lot of the meats at home. I also replaced a lot of the fats in cooking, and anyone knows new ways to prepare vegetables, I'm interested. What a great, cool story. Uh, NFL lineman turn lunch lady you don't see that every day but good for him and those kids and by the way this isn't uh fufu salad food when they look at the pictures in the washington post these are thick sandwiches that chimichurri looks amazing these are full plates of good food so good for him good for the kids getting to expand their world a little bit that'll do it for her tell today uh, however you're watching or listening we sure do appreciate it whether you're on the YouTube page uh, or any of the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, any of those sorts of places, uh, make sure to leave a rating and a comment. We'd sure appreciate it. It helps folks find us, let them know our little programs worth checking out. Also, uh, if you want to communicate with us, we're on the social media, uh, at Hertel Show on the Twitter, or you can do uh, at Hertel Show on Gmail. Give us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Questions, comments, epistles, anything like that. Let us have it. Maintain your bearing. Be nice about it. We'd love to communicate with you. Love to engage with you. Might even put your comments on the show. You never know. Uh, 
Also, on the YouTube page, we have a playlist of just the interviews. It's called Hertel Good Talks. Uh, if you sign up for the and subscribe at, for free at the YouTube page, you can get that. That's always fun. It makes it easy to find the great guests that we have on the program. Also, if you want to do us a favor, uh, get on your social media. All of the platforms that you're listening and or watching this program on has a share feature. Put us on your social media. Share us. Let folks know where they can find us and check us out. We'd sure appreciate it. Only costs you a click, but it means the world to us. And we're going to keep doing this as long as you keep watching and listening. And there's more and more of you watching and listening. We have grown week over week since we started doing the daily program. Uh, we did some numbers up for the Young Voices folks. It was kind of remarkable to see just how many of you are with us and have stayed with us. And we appreciate you so very much. So that'll do it for us. Wherever you are, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. We hope you and yours will join us again tomorrow for more Herd Tell. See y'all tomorrow. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.